Self-efficacy is living today as if the person you are going to be tomorrow. So without a vision of who you want to become or who God has called you to become, you really don't know where you're going. So self-efficacy is, this is who I want to be one year, five years, 10 years from now, take your pick, and you live like that today. If it's for you and ultimately only you, it's not gonna be your true purpose. I do know at the core, what I'm doing is to serve other people, is to help others unlock the gifts they have inside of them so that they can go share their gifts with others. David Nurse is changing lives today by helping others to unlock their gifts. Widely renowned as one of the top mindset specialists in the world, David has transformed the way hundreds of NBA stars play on the court and has also shaped the thinking of numerous corporate executives over the past 15 years. He's the author of three books, runs a transformational coaching business, and is a highly sought-after speaker who has been hired by top Fortune 100 companies and professional sports teams, helping thousands of employees and athletes develop unshakable mindsets. This podcast was originally created to spotlight all the ways that the Cutco Vector Marketing community is changing lives throughout the world. Every so often, we bring you a friend of our community who is helping others to change their lives and can bring tremendous value to our listeners. One recent NBA champion and all-star was quoted as saying, David is the guy that everyone needs to hire. Well, you'll get some of his amazing insights free here today. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get right to it with David Nurse. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have an incredible guest for you today named David Nurse. David is a mindset coach who has helped more than 150 NBA players to develop both on and off the court. He is the author of three books. His newest book is called Do It, The Life-Changing Power of Taking Action. Uh, David is also a worldwide motivational speaker, and he will be appearing at Vector's signature annual event, the Strategic Leadership Conference in October of 2023 in Houston. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm fired up for this conversation today. David, welcome to the podcast. Dan, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's going to be a fun one for sure. Exactly. Well, why don't you kick off by just telling us a little bit about your personal background? Yeah, so I grew up in the beautiful, majestic cornfields of Iowa. I grew up in the middle of nowhere, basically Midwest. And we were talking about before the, we started the podcast of like, yeah, I mean, we're out here in California. And when I tell people Iowa, I have to kind of say Midwest because people are like, oh, is that is that the potatoes? Idaho. Oh, you know where Cleveland is? No, that's Ohio. So the middle of the country smack dab small cornfield town, Pella, Iowa, and just really, you know, a, a really fun childhood. I'm very blessed to have great parents who supported me. And I mean, we didn't have, we didn't have a lot, but they would do everything that they could to be at every game, sporting event game that I had, every practice, even Dan, it come to the point where I'd have to tell my mom in middle school, I was like, mom, you don't need to come to 6.30 a.m. basketball practice for the seventh grade team. Like it was almost embarrassing to that point, but they were super supportive. And my childhood was pretty much the premise of it was I'm going to play in the NBA. Every waking hour was 
shooting hoops in the driveway, playing imaginary basketball games on my little tyke hoop downstairs in the basement and everything in my, in my life was the premise was I'm playing in the NBA. I loved it. I watched it. I studied it and I would have my little brother who's four years younger than me play against me so I could beat up on him every single time and I'd win every game. But uh, yeah, so that's that great childhood in, in small town Pella, Iowa. And your dad is Nick Nurse, who... Uncle. uncle. Your uncle. Your mm-hmm. uncle is Nick Nurse. Got it. Yep. Who won the NBA championship with the Toronto Raptors. I was in the building for that game. At, so was uh, I. We were in the same building. Yes. yes. Wow. 2019 in uh, Oakland, as it was. And uh, that's pretty cool to hear. Now, now he's the coach of the Philadelphia 76ers. Tell us your story about playing basketball and becoming a professional and uh, eventually getting into coaching. Yeah. So I always looked up to Nick. He was kind of my idol when I was playing basketball. And I got to play college basketball at Western Illinois. It was more of a, you know, like I had talent and ability, but it was it was a lot of hard work when I was telling you all those hours that I put in and and I didn't, I mean, my athleticism, my vertical leap is about two inches. I'm six foot two. So you're looking at me and you're like, well, maybe your parents probably should have told you to play tennis or golf, some other sport like that. But I love basketball. And I played college basketball at Western Illinois University. And I'm still thinking I'm going to the NBA. And no one has ever gone to the NBA from mid-major Western Illinois. But I thought I was. Didn't quite make it. I'm, and I go play overseas in Australia and Greece and Spain. And it sounds cool to say professional basketball overseas, but what most people don't understand is 95% of the professional basketball overseas is like Will Ferrell's movie Semi-Pro. And that's kind of uh, what it was like. Now, there was good talent over there, but I mean, I was making like 20 bucks a month, basically just getting my food and, and room paid for. And so I was playing my, my third year in northern Spain in the Basque region where they don't even speak Spanish. And I'm over here pouring in these two-a-days film study, like everything I could to just get every ounce of potential that I had. And I'm still thinking, damn, that I'm going into the NBA if I have a good season. And I get cut after the first preseason game. And the coach says, I can't cut it. He sends me home. And now this was all of my hopes and goals and dreams were in basketball. So mm. my identity was literally taken away. Not just taken away, but it's almost kind of injury to insult, face rubbed in the dirt. I have to come home and I'm living on my parents' recliner chair in Kearney, Missouri, a small town outside of Kansas City. And this is kind of where it all changed for me. So I was, I mean, I licked my own wounds for a while, like six months of just feeling bad for myself. No direction, because when I was in college, I, I didn't have a backup plan. Like, I was going to play in the NBA. And once again, like maybe that's a little bit of a fault. My parents probably should have said have a backup plan. But like I said, they were very supportive of my goals and dreams. And so my mom was doing dishes this one day, and it, it stands with me very vividly. I was kicked back on the recliner chair, and she would always say these motivational and these inspirational type of quotes. And... She said, when you know, they're usually out in one ear, out the other. And she, and she said, David, when one door closes, four open in an entire beachfront patio overlooking the ocean. And it caught me off guard. I was like, I thought it was one door, one door. What's this four doors and beachfront patio over the what, what? What is this? This All this other things when a door closes. So it opened my eyes. That was the moment that I realized that everything I poured into playing in the NBA 
was not for me to be able to play in it, but is what I learned, what I developed, the hard work I put in to be able to teach other players who had more God-given ability, seven-foot height and athleticism to play in the NBA. So that's right where it sparked, hey, Mm -hmm. I want to be a coach Mm. in the NBA. Now there's a whole journey that goes about being a coach in the NBA, but that was kind of my my pivot moment, if you would say, where it was where I realized, because we, we often think that if a door closes, like, oh, it's over. Well, it's, it's all gone. No, a door is just leading you to something better. It is God's opening, closing doors to opening better doors for you. But you have to take action towards it. You can't just wait. Like, I couldn't just wait for the phone to ring that someone was going to think that I wanted to be an NBA coach and they were going to invite me onto the team to be a coach. That doesn't happen. But in this process of when doors close in our lives, it's not over. It's transferable skills that we develop to be able to go use to the next thing. Transferable skills of myself playing in the NBA to be able to eventually coach in the NBA. I love that mindset of looking for what is the gift in the adversity that you experienced. How did you bust through that door as a coach? To get into coaching? Yeah. Okay. So I made that decision after I had that realization. So I hand wrote a letter to every NBA GM and wrote it and just basically put in there something that I liked about their team. And if I could serve them, I was here to serve them. And I sent it out and I got nothing back for a month and a half, nothing. So I was like, okay, well, that didn't work. But then I got a call from a 310 area code number. That's Los Angeles area. It was the GM of the Clippers at the time, Gary Sachs. And we just had a like, you know, quick, normal conversation. He was probably just being nice, calling me back because that's the, the type of person he is. And ironically, the funny thing is I was, I'll get to how close Gary and I got, but I was just at Gary's house two nights ago for a barbecue. He's, he's become one of my best friends through this. So Gary and I have this conversation and he says at the end of it, if you're ever out in LA, look me up, we'll grab coffee. You know, like people say like, good luck, basically good luck with the rest of your life, kid. But I took that as an opportunity. I spent all my money I had, stole some of my parents' money so I could book a flight to be out in LA that following (laughs) week. And I I was acting like I told him, oh, I have a basketball camp out there. So I didn't look desperate, you know? And I studied up for this meeting and, and, and really was prepared for it. And I walked into his office, the Clippers practice facility where his office was. And I remember this vividly. I was just so nervous, sweating through the only button up shirt that I owned at the time. But Gary and I hit it off. We had a great meeting. We became friends. And every NBA connection that I received, people that I met, eventually ended up coaching in the NBA, stemmed from Gary Sachs, that, sending that letter right there. And I, when I moved out to L.A., eventually I ended up living with him for a, about eight months. He was one of the people on my, well, my side in the wedding. And like I said, he's still one of my closest friends. We see each other all the time. He's still out here in L.A., and the point of this is all is and we can get in like there's more that goes on to like how I actually now I had to make myself the expert in a thing. I couldn't just wait for Gary to say, hey, I've got this guy who wants to coach in the NBA. Give him a, a coaching job. No, I had to make myself the expert. So all I could do was shoot. I mean, that's like I didn't have that athleticism, didn't like defense, but I could really shoot. Mm-hmm. It's like, OK, if I can do this, I can teach other people this. So I developed these basketball shooting camps and I'd been doing a few with my uncle Nick and I developed my own. Now I started doing these and I had a a custom leather basketball that was created in China. Now, when I say that, the leather was super cheap, but I still have some of these. Oh, this is awesome. Check this out. We're here. 
Look, this is what, exactly what it looks like. I have one of them in my office. It's this leather with a line down the middle. If you're watching this, you can see this. So you can see the shooting rotation on the ball. Okay? Mm, yeah. So that was made from China, sent to the Oakland Seaport. Oakland Seaport. I drove 29 hours from Kansas City in my little Nissan Maxima out to Oakland. And I put them all in my car with all these long haul truckers making fun of me out there. And I spent the next five years driving around the country doing basketball camps for any high school, middle school, YMCA, sleeping on friends' couches. I mean, sleeping in well-lit Walmart parking lots, just doing basketball camps for anybody that would take me in. And I loved it. I love, but I, I didn't have a home address for five years. I wow. literally did not have a home address. Thank for great friends and and even people who probably didn't even know I was their friend. I still crashed on their couches, some random people from time to time. But we'll fast forward and I wake up in Melbourne, Australia, five years later, and I get an email that says Brooklyn Nets shooting coach. I was like, I don't know anybody from the Brooklyn Nets. I didn't have any contacts there. And I was like, this has got to be spam, something. I don't know what this is. But I opened it. And that following week, I was the shooting coach for the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, wow. What a story. Wow. And somewhere in here, you set two Guinness World Records. What was that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I was doing these camps, like, oh, I got to create some buzz for these shooting camps and i knew i could shoot so i looked up so this is the interesting thing about guinness too so i looked up the records on youtube like what was the most three-pointers made in a minute with one ball it was like 19 so i can beat that and i did i got 20 and then i eventually got 21 and and i put it on youtube i put guinness world record because i thought it's like you know it's guinness world record everybody knows guinness is a world record guinness wasn't officially there but espn picked it up they caught wind of it they pumped it on ESPN, so it started getting all this pub and everything. And I did another one as well. It was like five minutes with one basketball, some crazy amount where I was just, you know, when you get in that zone, you kind of just black out and you're just shooting and shooting. Curry's never tried to delete you from these records. So, so that's the thing. Like, <laughs> if he wanted to, he yeah. probably could. But the key part is the rebounder. So if you watch this, if you if you Google this video and you watch it, it's the rebounder who catches it and passes it without it hitting the ground. I think the ball hit the ground like twice. So it's just, so he probably could. But 21 in a minute, it's tough to get off more shots than that. So Curry, that's your challenge. (laughs) But the funny thing is, so the full circle funny thing is, about two years ago, Guinness emailed me. They emailed me and said, hey, these records, they're not official records. There was no one from Guinness there. And I was just like, you know what? That's all I need. If Guinness is going to come seek after me, then I know they're a record. <laughs> nice, nice. That's pretty cool. I like it. So you you connect with the Brooklyn Nets, and that's where it really all starts for you coaching NBA players. And I know you've had a lot of uh, of success stories. Tell us some of the stories and just some of the mindset tips that you helped players with. Yeah. So with Brooklyn, we went from 28th and three point shooting percentage to second when I was there. And now that is just a lot of God's grace and his blessings. But it was it was really fun to when we're working with those players of showing players where their best shots were. So what really helped these guys go from 28th to second was sure, they're NBA talented, they're great shooters, they're great players, but they didn't know what their personal best shots were. It's kind of like, I mean, a good analogy for all of us. We think that we might have a 
we're good at something here, good at something there. But what is specifically your strength? What do you do better than anybody else that makes you stand out? And that was finding this for these players. So I look at the analytics and the example that I use is Wayne Ellington. And he was a really good three-point shooter. And he was shooting like 29% or 30%, something just really low. So I was looking at his shots and watching his film. And he was shooting a lot of three-pointers off multiple dribbles, step backs off the move. And that increases the difficulty of shooting threes for most players. And that wasn't Wayne's strength. So it's like, well, you might think you're in the right zone, the right lane, but you're doing the wrong thing. He's a three-point shooter, but he wasn't doing it the right way that was for his strength. So I looked at his analytics and studied it more in depth. And when he shot catch and shoot threes just off the pass uh, in transition, so that's that's he's coming in transition and he's set in a transition set and also shooting corner threes, which are the corners, which are some of the highest analytical shots in the NBA. He was like off the charts, like almost into the 60s of percentile, which is crazy good. So it's like I showed this to Wayne and he became aware that these were his best shots. So what he started to do and what we did together was we didn't count his makes or misses. All we counted was how many times did he shoot that transition three catch and shoot or a corner three because we knew the more reps he would get at his highest level, the better chance to succeed that he would have. He ended up bumping it up to like 43% or something by the end of the season and got a three-year deal with the Miami Heat for $25 million, something like that. But I mean, he probably wouldn't have got that if he was still shooting his threes off the dribble and all that kind of stuff because it was understanding his his highest level, his strength zone. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of success stories. There's there's some like going right now, if people are watching the world championships or you're watching the NBA this past year, I worked with this kid, Shea Alexander. And he is a first. Oh, yeah. I've heard of this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> first, first team all first NBA. First team all NBA, to, yeah. Woo. He's one of the best players in the world now. And I tell this story of like, because I would, would do pre-draft where there's college players, they're getting ready for the NBA draft. And I'd have a ton of players. And, and Shay would, I mean, he, the first workout. So when we have these pre-draft workouts, we try to crush them. Because when they go to the teams, it's basically like a tryout. They just wear them down to see how mentally tough they are. How do they perform when they're fatigued? So we would simulate this. In the very first workout, we would just try to crush their soul, basically, in the workouts. And most players would just be spent, like laying down after the workout, so tired. So Shay comes in, this kid from Kentucky, not very highly ranked. He was projected as a late first round pick. No one really knew about him. Like, I, I, I kid you not, he would just follow me around everywhere. He'd come to my workouts that I do for little kids. He'd come help out. He was just the nicest guy. No one really knew about him. And he's just kind of an unassuming guy. But this first workout, Crush him. I mean, just how he's drenched in sweat. He's just pushing it to the limit. And at the end of the workout, so most players don't, I mean, they're done. He comes up to me right after work. He's like, right afterwards, and he says, Coach, when are we going tonight? And I was like, oh, man, this guy's different. So what that showed to me was, is what I call insatiable drive. And it's how I could tell if a player has the potential to be a great player, an NBA all-star by this insatiable drive, meaning mm. do I have to drag the player to the gym? Do I have to say, hey, Shay, workouts at 7 a.m., 
And you got to go tonight as well. Or do they drag me to the gym? And that is one of the biggest difference makers, the biggest separators. I also had a number three pick in the NBA draft, Josh Jackson. He was the complete opposite. Most people don't know who he is because he was out of the league in three years because he didn't love that process. Shea loved the process. Shea would go at people's heads when he was just coming out of college. And I can, I can tell you one more. I'll tell you one more before. There's so many stories. Like we could go on for days and days, but this one's really relevant as well because he's the best player for Team USA right now, Anthony Edwards. So mm-hmm. Anthony Edwards, people will know, is kind of he's kind of you know a breakout player. So when I was doing these workouts for Wasserman Agency, so this is you'd have Russell Westbrook, Clay Thompson, Sabonis, all these just top-notch players, and we're playing pickup in the summertime. So NBA players they play a lot of pickup and. These are high-level games, like high-level NBA players. So sometimes the agents would bring in younger players, high school players that they were recruiting, which probably wasn't legal at the time, but you know now it is. So they brought in this uh, a couple of high school players, and now they never get into the games. Like you don't put high school players in the games with NBA players; it just doesn't happen. But one of the agents, he said, "I got this player. I want you to put him in the game." And I was like, okay, well, who is it? And you showed me this high school guy. I was like, no, 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 like, you can't do this. Like, the NBA players would get mad if the level came down, right? They want a high level. It's like, no, put him in. You kind of are at bay at the agents when you're in this, so you got to do it. So I had him on the bench when we started playing pickup, and then a little bit into the game, you know, the guy needed a sub, so I put him in. And I'm like, okay, here we go. The first play, he gets an outlet pass. He catches it about half court. He takes like two or three dribbles, this high school kid, and just raises up and hammers a dunk so hard on two NBA stars I will not name, (laughs) so hard on their head. I was just, my my jaw dropped. I looked over at the agent, and he was smiling, nodding at me. I was like, who is this guy? He's like, Anthony Edwards. He'll be the first pick in the NBA draft and a superstar. And now he is. Yeah, indeed, indeed. My money's on that guy for most improved player in the NBA this year, by the way. You can, you can mark that one down. Yeah. I think he's going to have the same kind of breakout this year that SGA had yeah. last year. Hey, so. hey, what's the common denominator over here, right? I mean, Boom. I touch on him. I mean, I'm taking all the credit now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. So nice. So Shea Gilgis Alexander. Anthony Edwards. Wow. That's a, uh, th- those are uh, a couple of prolific names as a Warriors fan. I have to admit to you that I don't like the Clippers and I kind of chuckle at the Clippers struggles for, well, my entire life. <laughs> and I think about them trading Shea and a bunch of draft picks for Paul George. And if they hadn't done that, I can't help but think they'd be better off right now. It was interesting because I was doing the workout for the Clippers and it was just for Shea and they'd already made him a promise. Like he was, word kind of got out like of his work ethic and everything. So the Clippers came, did a private workout for him. Doc was there. Jerry West was there and just like, we're going to take Shea. We're going to draft him. We want him that bad. And then to see them trade him afterwards, it's like, oh man, but it all works out for him. They might not have gotten Kawhi because they want, you know, Kawhi wanted Paul George over there, but, uh, but who knows, man? If they still had Shea, I know Kawhi, yeah. that would be a, that. What what a right? What how, a combo. Kawhi, how how has Kawhi worked out for him ever since he left Toronto playing for my uncle? What, what, I mean, he's played like five games in three years. Yeah, yeah, I know. So 
pretty cool. I, I'd like to hear just more of your mindset tips working with NBA players. Maybe you could tell us about Snap from your TED Talk if you want, or anything else yeah. that comes to mind from you know sure. what you've coached people on. There's a ton of different mindset tools, and it's kind of like it's kind of like golfing. You just pick out the right club at the right situation that a player might need. So there's, and, and I'll get to snap, but I'll kind of preface some other ones. Like the biggest thing that NBA players struggle with that most people will be like, no, there's no way, but it's confidence, literally having confidence. And I teach players how to have an unshakable confidence when they step on the floor. And it's a huge difference maker, really. And in being a Warriors fan, you can see this in Steph Curry. What does he never do? He never hesitates, right? hesitation is a precursor to any type of performance failure because you're doubting yourself. And it's a 0.01 seconds that takes place in your SMA, your supplementary motor cortex, where this hesitation comes into play. And a lot of players have hesitation because of their lack of confidence in their abilities, their skill sets, because a Mm. coach, even at no matter what level they're at, if they're afraid to get taken out, if they're afraid to let down their teammates, if they're afraid to fill in the blank with some type of fear, hesitation is going to encapsulate them at some capacity. Like Steph Curry, it does not do that to him. There's very rare amount of players. Now there's ways to work on this. I mean, one tool that I give to players is what I call a cue word. This is a trigger. So it's a word that you say, snap, which we'll get to is also a cue. It's a trigger. It's a word that you say or a snapping of the fingers that is going to kick your subconscious back into this confident self that you are. So you match you match a previous game or your best personal highlight reel with this word. So, for example, Norm Powell, a clipper that I've worked with for a long time since his UCLA days, when we made this transition for him, his, his keyword became unshakable. He actually has it tattooed on his arm now, on his whole arm called it says unshakable. And he would say this in a game when he started to feel any type of doubt creep in. He'd say, unshakable, unshakable. And we, we practiced that prior to become a cue to kick back to his subconscious that when he says the word unshakable, it is tied with his best high school game, his best college game. So that's how these triggers work. Now, snap is a number. So you got to figure out what players work with best. Is it words? Is it actions? So some players like the, in the TED Talk that I gave, worked really well with physical actions. Snapping your fingers is a cue. So that snap stands for stop. So what's the hardest thing to do when you're in the heat of the moment is to actually take a step back. Because once things start get, getting challenging, they start to continue to compile and compile. So stop stands for stop. You stop. The N is notice. You notice the situation around you. Kind of think like the movie Matrix here, where everything just stops and freezes, and you can take a step back out of your body, out of reality. Stop, notice, assess. You're assessing the situation. How did I get in this situation? How did I get in this point where I have missed seven shots in a row? What's happened? And then the P is pivot, where it's a small turn in perspective. It's not a big drastic change. You're not just throwing... The whole kitchen sink out, it's just a small pivot, which opens up an entirely new perspective and horizon. So stop, notice, assess, pivot. And you snap your fingers. And you can use that any. It doesn't have to just be an athlete. It can be anybody. It can be a mom who's got an incredibly stressful day and a kid's throwing a frying pan at her, at her head. Stop, notice, assess, pivot. It's just a way to take a step back, but you tie different moments, your personal highlight reel. You can tie confidence with this. And so that's, that's kind of the whole 
just cue words and cue actions of a mindset tool. Now, there's a lot of different mindset tools that you can go into in terms of like what you're doing in your morning routine. How are you starting your day off? I like to start my day off with something people call it eat the frog. I just, I've never really liked frog legs or uh, eating frogs. So I don't call it that. It's what I call mental dictatorship. And this works for anything that you do that you might think is difficult, that you don't think you can get through. So I took a stopwatch around for all these years that I was training for 12 years. And anytime a player didn't look like they wanted to do a workout, because believe it or not, NBA players don't always want to work out. They really don't. I would hit that stopwatch. And the the average number that came up was 17 seconds before they started and they felt okay to continue going. So think about mm-hmm. that. Let's say you're, you're lifting weights or you're working out. It's always the starting that sucks. But after 17 seconds, after you do a few reps, after you start running a little bit, after you lift that for those first couple reps, you're fine. So what that told me is it only takes 17 seconds for the mind to overcome what the body's telling them they can't do. So mm. I do this in the morning in my own morning routine of a, an ice cold shower. I've been doing ice cold before ice plunge baths were even a thing for years and years. And I hate getting into it. I never look forward to it. But after the first 17 seconds, I know that I can get through it. So it's also a just like um, for me to be able to know anything that I go through difficult in the day, I know I can do it because it only takes 17 seconds. Mm. Love it. Love it. The SNAP acronym, Stop, Notice, Assess, Pivot. That's a cue. People could snap their fingers. That's a cue. The 17 seconds into doing something that maybe you don't want to do, all of a sudden, that motion, that action, right? That dictates your feeling versus the other way around. I really like that. That was cool. Um, What other like cues or triggers might you have or other just mindset concepts do you work with people on? So many. I've literally have a whole list of 44 that I'll tap into. And Kate, like, so we, whenever I'm working with a player or an individual, like, I'll figure out what they need because everybody's different. I can't give somebody something that they don't need or it's not going to work. It's going to fall on deaf ears. So I always ask questions to figure out what they need. And then I'll go back into the bag of tools, I guess you could say, or the tool belt and uncover. So one that's really important that I think everybody can use is the, the tool of self-efficacy. So self-efficacy is living today as if the person you are going to be tomorrow. So without a vision of who you want to become or who God has called you to become, you really don't know where you're going. So self-efficacy is, all right, this is who I want to be one year, five years, 10 years from now. Take your pick. And you live like that today. So I have this tool where I'll have it. uh, you, You cut out a picture, you pick a picture of where you want to be. I have one of myself speaking in front of an audience that sold out Madison Square Garden with my face pasted on it. So it's that's what I'm going to do. Someday I'm going to speak to that large of an audience. I put it on my fridge. So I see that every day when I walk to the fridge. I see it multiple times. I'll have people put it on their lock screen of their phone. And you, average Americans touch their phone 2,147 times per day, that many times. So you're seeing it constantly, constantly. But here's the trick. Okay, you cannot keep it in the same spot for more than 11 days. 11 days is the average number when the brain starts to become mute to what it continually sees. So it's like if that picture is up on that fridge and think about it, you probably have pictures on your fridge that you don't even remember you have up there because it's just so 
ingrained in your mind. You have mm-hmm. to change locations of it. You have to change pictures of it. And even more powerful than like writing something out and then just leaving it there. The picture is powerful because visual images are powerful, but also writing it out every day. So whatever my, who I want to be, who I want to become or goal that I have, you write it every day because there's some kind of just innate connection between the brain and the physical writing that's different than typing it on your phone with your thumbs or just having something sit there for a certain amount, a lot of the amount of time. So the key is if you can continue to write it daily and place it in a different spot, your mind is going to, your subconsciously going to start telling your story that and believing that story more. And it won't just be this quick burst of, oh, the first week was amazing, but now I completely forgot about it because I didn't even know it was there. Mm -hmm. I love that element of repetition that you create with that idea of you know moving a picture of your goal around or rewriting it daily something i've talked about a lot with people is that repetition is what creates buy in that you need to hear an idea multiple times be exposed to an idea multiple times for it to really sink in and internalize as a part of who you are and this jives with that whole concept that if you if you're somebody who pins up your goals but they're in the same place and you get desensitized to seeing them all the time, moving them around, changing the picture, these sorts of ideas, right? Rewriting things regularly on a more frequent basis. Anything like that helps reinforce the ideas much more strongly within our subconscious that that will help bring them into reality. Yeah, spot on. You're exactly right. Great stuff. Give me some more. Some more tools that just keep going in the bag. Yeah, man. Oh man. Okay. Let's see. What what tell me something that you need. Tell me a struggle that you have and let's let's find a tool for it. Yeah. Well, I guess we could get into your your archetypes in your book because that that's something that resonated to me for sure. So David's book is Do It, the Life-Changing Power of Taking Action. And in here you've got your nine action archetypes. You talk about the concept of faith versus fear. Maybe you could tell us about that. In fact, why don't you tell us about that a little bit before I ask you about the archetypes? Yeah, well, faith versus fear just comes down to there are two choices that you can make. And there's so many different, I mean, avenues of you're either in camp one or you're in camp two. And this is you're either in a a faith or you either live in fear. They take the same amount of mental capacity. They take the same amount of energy and they take the same amount of uncertainty, to be honest with you. Like you have faith and people are like, well, I, I don't know if I can have faith because I can't see it. I can't touch it. I don't know if it's actually there, but yet the fear is the same way. It's uncertainty that we don't know if it's going to happen. It's the worst case scenario thoughts, which there's a study done, a famous study done by Lafrain and Newman, which I outlined in the book that 92 point, I think it was like 92.28% of worst case scenario thoughts never come true. So we spend all this time thinking about the worst case scenario, which is the fear, the uncertainty, and they never even come true. So why not make the choice to live in faith? Okay, maybe it's not always going to happen. It's not always going to come true, but you're going to live a much more peaceful, content life if you're choosing faith over fear. Same amount of energy, same amount of uncertainty, choose faith. Yeah, that was that was great. So your archetypes, David, you start with the allodoxophobic, which is the person who 
fears what other people will think. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, just some really good concepts and ideas in here that we can that we can dig into. This one resonated to me because I don't know how I would how I would phrase this, David. I I like to be appreciated. I like to be recognized as somebody who's good at what I do, and so I sort of value hearing that feedback. Mm-hmm. And if I do something and there's no positive feedback, sometimes it makes me feel like question myself or, you know, am I good enough here? Should I be doing this? I think that that feeling can sometimes hold me back or stop me from doing some of the things that I want to do. Yeah, totally. Um, Maybe you could talk about that one for a little bit. Absolutely. Allodaxophobic is the fear of other people's opinions. Now, humans at the core, we are validation seekers. That's what you're speaking into. One of the largest parts of our, our brain is the ventral striatum. And this is where that dopamine rush of the validation seeking occurs. And in 1902, this, this guy, Charles Horton Cooley, developed the looking glass self theory, meaning we look through a glass of other people's viewpoints and that's how we validate ourselves. Our identity becomes what we think other people are seeing us as. And as I'm saying this, like I know this is resonating because it resonates with all of us to some extent. We all want to be liked, but there's a difference in wanting to be liked and needing to be liked. Huge difference. So what you have to understand, it's very freeing to know that not everyone is going to like you. It is just not going to happen. It's a generally accepted number that 19%, no matter what, 19% of people will not like you. I think I got this from a study that they were doing some kind of political and, and they do a lot of who likes who and the political debates and stuff, but 19% of people will not accept you and not like you. And for different reasons, most of it is their own jealousy and they are, they are own internal fears that they have that they're projecting on somebody else. It's not actually you, but then you see what they're saying and you spend the rest of your day, the rest of your 86,400 seconds in a day thinking about that and they think about you for literally like 10 seconds. So never going to be able to have everybody's approval. You need to know that going in. Now, the tool that I use for this is what I call Be the Comedian. So think about your favorite comedy show. Mine is The Office, the, the best comedy Michael Scott, this this regional manager of a Dunder Mifflin paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he would always say things just to get himself, like put his foot in his mouth and just getting these really uncomfortable situations where people were judging him and, you know, people were saying things about him or it's just, if you, if you know the show, you know what I'm talking about. They're just these tough, difficult situations. But as the viewer... It's hilarious, right? We're watching this and we are laughing because it's very funny. So the Be The Comedian tool is essentially that. When you are going through something like this, where you feel like, oh, I'm worrying about what other people think. I'm worried about taking action because I'm scared of what somebody's going to think or I'm in a difficult situation. Take that step back and think about being that whatever your favorite comedy show is whether it's Friends, whether it's Seinfeld, whether it's The Office, and step into that. like Beavis and Butthead, does that qualify here? (laughs) That's a perfect one. See, it makes you laugh, too. And when you can take that more lightly on the situations that you're in, it does make you laugh. 
And it does alleviate any types of pressure because ultimately we feel this pressure that we have to be liked, that we have to feel like we matter, that we have to feel like we're important. When the reality of it is everybody is playing the same game you are. They have the same insecurities you do. No matter what they look like, no matter how they talk, everybody has some kind of self-doubt within themselves. But the most attractive trait to me and somebody is when they're so comfortable in their own skin of who they are, they make others feel comfortable in their skin. Mm. Boy, that's a great point. It's super deep. It's like I'm just pondering how much that really does apply. I can remember... David taking a doing a it was a seminar called the Landmark Forum. I don't know if you've heard of Landmark Education, but mm-hmm. and this was one of the signature concepts that they shared. Like they took us through this exercise where we were in our minds picturing like all of the fears we have about other people and what they might think and all of this stuff. And then and then they the teacher sort of transformed those thoughts into us flipping that around and realizing they all have the same exact thoughts about everybody else they meet, including us, right? And and most people are a lot more concerned just thinking about their own day and what they're doing right now than than focusing so much on you and dwelling on that. So I think there's some really good insights in there. Wanting versus needing that approval for sure. And then being the comedian, finding the the comedy and in the different situations that we're in and just a lot of good stuff. Thanks, man. Yeah. How about how about the perfectionist? This was mm-hmm. another one of your Yeah. And to me these tie together because like I I want to be appreciated, I want to be recognized as somebody who's good at what I do, so I want to try to do everything really well. And sometimes I feel like perfect can be the enemy of doing something good, good enough, right? Like getting started. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot in this one that also resonated to me. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is one of the most high performers struggle with perfectionism at some level, because you want to think that everything that you do is the top notch, the best it's going to be. But the truth is, it's never going to be the best at the start. It's like I tell people, if you want a really good laugh today, go watch my old YouTube videos when I was promoting basketball camps. I can hardly talk into the camera. It doesn't even like it's terrible. Listen to my first podcast that I did six years ago. There's no relevancy to any of the conversation that we have. They're really bad. But if I would have waited to the level that I'm at now, it would have never happened. I would have never started. And that is the only way to learn is to actually through taking action. It's through taking action, even when you don't have it all together. And I call this the 90% rule. So the 90% rule works in two ways. You have done the work, but you're not sure if it's going to work out completely or not. You're about 90% of the way there. That means it's time to go. It's the ready, fire, aim mentality, 90% rule. And then it's also that 90% rule of you don't put 100% effort in. And that might sound really weird to people like, oh, you're supposed to give 100%, give 110%. No, no, no. When you do that, you, you have a term what's called pressing, where you're trying too hard. You're trying to force the situation too much by going this 100% where your sweet spot, your flow state happens at about 90% because then you leave a little bit of room for your natural abilities. You leave a little bit of room for flexibility. If something doesn't go the right way, it doesn't throw you completely out of your stratosphere. 90% rule eliminates the pressing situation. Now, people will also say, 
well, you know, I procrastinate on purpose and I do better work late when the shot clock's winding down. Eh, I don't know about that. There's many studies done. There was one done in Canada that came back that 95% of people who procrastinated, 95% felt more stressed and anxious. So, so maybe the work turned out better, but do you want to live a life of more stress and anxiety? I hope not. So this, this procrastination is not the production value that people might think. And it, the perfectionist, you're never going to get things perfect. You can strive for perfectionism. You can try to be perfect with the knowledge that Jesus is the only person that was ever perfect walking this earth. And it's totally okay to not be perfect. It's totally okay to embrace your flaws. I even have a tool that I call the failure stats. Failure stats. How many times have you tracked your failures or even basically batched in your future failures? Think about that. We only track our success, but our failures allow us to not know that we don't have to be perfect. If you only uh, get accolades for your success, then you have this pressure on yourself that you always have to be perfect. But if you track your failures and even say, you know what, I'm going to fail. I'm going to give a talk sometime that's going to be horrible. I'm going to write a book that's not going to be as good as it should be. I'm going to do a podcast that's not good. I know those things will probably come and I'm totally okay with that because that's part of the process. And if I think I have to have it all perfect or I think I have to be perfect, I will never even reach to anywhere close where God's created me to be because I'm getting in my own way. Hmm. So true. I mean, that really uh, did strike a chord for me. David, I mean, you're never going to be your best at the start in anything. Like that was the very first thing you said there. And that, that totally is true. Like everything that I've done, I feel like as I've done it more and more and more, I certainly have learned and evolved. There were a lot of things I didn't even know I didn't know at first that I became aware of that helped me to improve. And that was true. And then, and then your whole point about when you procrastinate, you might do it well, but is it worth the stress? that you feel and pressure that you feel. Uh, that was such a great point also. Cause yeah, I, I know like I can do things well when I'm under the gun, but I think that's losing sight of like a greater purpose, which is like why we're doing what we're doing. Like I yeah. work so I can live a great life. Like I don't live to work. I'm not my work goals and my other things that I quote unquote have to do are not what I'm here for. Right. It's like, I'm here so that I can have a nice lifestyle. And when I, when my work is done in a manner that does not put me in positions of stress and anxiety, I'm living a better life, right? That's what I really want most. So yeah. I'm better off not procrastinating, not putting myself behind that proverbial eight ball, right? Totally. Yeah. You're spot on, man. Yeah. Which archetype did you resonate the most with, David? The distracted. The distracted. So definitely the distracted. And what I mean by the distracted doesn't necessarily mean that I have all these things distracting me or that I'm on my phone scrolling or that I have notifications popping up because I don't. I, I mean, I structure very well to allocate my time. Distracted means the, the big vision goal, your great, your mission that you know God's created you for. And there's going to be a lot of shiny objects that look really good along the way. But the enemy of great is not bad. People know what bad is. The enemy of great is good. Where you select these opportunities that don't lead you to your bigger purpose and your bigger mission. And I'm very blessed to be offered a lot of opportunities to, you know, hey, we're having this event. Oh, hey, there's this mastermind. Oh, hey, you should come here. 
But if it's not in line with the mission that I'm on, I really have to think about it. Like, should I take this? Should I do this? And I know that might sound like, oh, well, well, great. You have all those those opportunities. But to everybody, to some extent, is where you allocate your time is your essential time that you have. And keeping the most important, the most important is the most important thing. Yeah, for sure. I was talking to some young people just recently about how you balance all the different activities of a busy lifestyle, particularly we work with a lot of students and we have kids that are going to school, playing a sport, trying to work with us, trying to do other things as well, all at once. And I I suggested that they write down, like journal for a week, everything you do, and then look back and say, what was everything I did at least three hours a week? I just sort of arbitrarily chose three hours a week as being a significant amount of time. All right. Maybe you might even draw that line lower, but everything you do three hours a week and then think about why did you do that? What purpose is that serving in your life? And if it's, let's say they're playing video games on a Friday night, but the purpose it's serving in their life is that they're hanging out with their buddies and they're enhancing their connections with their best friends. That's purposeful. That's good, right? That's not a waste of time, mm-hmm. right? But if they're playing video games alone in the middle of the day, mm. killing time, right? I'm not so sure that's serving any really good purpose. Maybe it's they need downtime and you could construct a reason why it's valuable because we all need that too. But I do think that there's a lot of things that a lot of people do every single week for three hours or more that serve zero purpose in their life, that they're not going to look back on 20 or 30 years later and go, man, I wish I did more of that. They're going to look back on and go, what was I doing? Why was I even wasting my time? Right. And if we can find those things and eliminate those things, right, then we're less distracted. Right. Then we're really applying ourselves more towards our, our true purpose, as you said. Right. Really good, man. Yeah. It's really good. How do they find that purpose, David? Like, what does a young person do to really realize what's most important? Man, it's a phenomenal question. And there is a, a lot to that to unpack and how you find your purpose. But I mean, ultimately, so there's a lot of different avenues that somebody can take. And just at the core of it, to me, and just being straight up is aligning with what God is calling you. What, what is he tugging on your heart to do? Not what are you thinking you should do that's going to bring you a lot of finances or accolades or social media likes. If it's for you and ultimately only you, it's not going to be your true purpose. It's going to be a very empty feeling that you have, even if you make it to the proverbial top of the mountain, where you'll still be like Steve Jobs, very empty on your deathbed and no friends. So you align it with like where you're feeling called. Where you have God-given strengths and abilities, I think he gives us our strengths and our gifts for a reason and not trying to push those away or shove those away. And I mean, you're just talking to people too that are very wise, like wise counsel is very important. It's not saying that you ask your mom about everything who, or ask people that are just going to be your, your yes men in your corner, like an American Idol singer who's actually horrible, but everybody tells them they're really good. That's not the people you should look, be looking for advice to. Look into wise people, seek wisdom from the wise who are willing to challenge and support you. So you have to bounce these off other people and ask for people's help that want to help that have been there through that before. And then it's a constant learning process, man. Like your bigger purpose, you might not know what it is. And that's totally okay. Like I like I thought I was gonna be an NBA player. Then I thought I was gonna be a basketball coach. Like then I thought I was gonna be a 
optimization coach, and now speaking, author, like maybe it continues to transform. I don't know. But I do know at the core, at the simple of it, what I'm doing is to serve other people, is to help others unlock the gifts they have inside of them so that they can go share their gifts with others. And that's what I call my personal mission statement. So figuring out, that really helps. Figuring out your personal mission statement, which is a one line, very succinct, that you can tell anybody at any time that you know that any decision that you have to make, you can funnel it through that mission statement. And I know too that that mission statement for me is I'm ultimately showing people the glory of God. I'm showing people Jesus through that. Mm. Great stuff. You talk uh, in the book, David, about the brain-heart connection. Does that kind of pertain a little bit here as well? Yeah, the brain-heart connection. I mean, the brain, these different action archetypes that I go through, we're going through like neurologically what's actually going on in the brain. So you can really see like kind of mentioned a few of the SMA, uh, different different areas of the brain, what's triggering, what's firing, why these things are happening, these different fears. So you get to see it neurologically in the brain. The heart is the feelings. So your feelings or your heart, not actually your heart pumping there, but the feelings that you have, your intuition that you have, your gut feelings that you have and trusting that and learning how to lean into that and why we're pushing that away with our fears and how to be able to accept it and use it. So the connection between the brain and the feelings, the heart, are, I mean, just a, something that is a, a, a non-negotiable that you need when you're seeking out to figure out what's your purpose, your vision, your mission, and your ultimate, what your personal ultimate success looks like. Yeah, I feel like that that does tie into your purpose, finding your purpose, at least. One of my favorite writers talks a lot about just the feeling you have in your body and and paying attention to that, right? Somebody asks you to do something. How do you feel about that? Like, how do you feel about it? Is there like a, all of a sudden, like a reluctance that builds up that, that says something, or is there an excitement that builds up that says something different, right? So I think that that's a a part of it here. And, and, you know, you talked about what are you called to, right? Whether somebody believes in God or not, I feel like that element of what are you called to is applicable either way. And then also playing to your strengths. As you said, knowing what are your strengths, knowing what are your superpowers, what are you really good at that you enjoy doing and and finding a way of leveraging that in the whole process as well. A lot of cool ideas on helping people find out what their purpose is. Nice, man. This has been great. I appreciate it. What What do you got in store for us in Houston? Oh, well. Well, this is just the appetizer of what Houston is going to be. This is just an introductory to, I've got three main things that we're going to hit on, and I'm going to give you one of the most powerful, actionable daily tools that I have seen transform people's lives by practicing this. So there's there's a lot in store for Houston, but that's all I'm going to, that's all I'm going to give you as the appetizer. Fair enough. Fair enough. Nice. If somebody is a vector district or a division manager, you will be able to meet David and see him speak live at our strategic leadership conference in Houston in October, 2023. If you're listening to this post that event, I'm sure we'll have that recorded and you'll be able to check that out. So you can all, everybody watching or listening will be able to learn from your message and get the most out of it. So how can people keep up with you, follow your work, just be a part of your yeah. tribe. Yeah, thank you. So I do a, a small group coaching, which I call the 1% squad, where it's daily growth, 
where we meet bi biweekly, twice a month on a Zoom together. It's just a very powerful community of driven individuals who want to pour into themselves in different different areas. There's 12 different success habits that we go through during the year. The power of genuinely connecting, how to set your mission statement and your vision, uh, how to create more time in your day, the optimal morning and evening routine. So we go into 12 of these throughout the year. Super fun community that that I've created and that I lead. Social media, pretty active on uh, the social media platforms. David Nurse NBA is the main handle throughout those. My podcast, The David Nurse Show, website, davidnurse.com. And yeah, or just come out here to the west side of Los Angeles and, you know, hang out, play some hoop. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. We'll, we'll link uh, all those things into the show notes for this episode, which you can find at changinglivespodcast.com. And I will take you up on the West LA hangout time at some point. All down, um, Dan. Although I might prefer like a meal and uh, some fine adult beverages or something like that uh, over. We got shit. some of that down here too. We got some yeah. good food down here in LA. Yeah. Hey, David, this has been great. I really appreciate your time and energy. And I'll look forward to meeting you personally in Houston in, uh, in a few more weeks. Appreciate you, Dan. Thank you very much. All right. David Nurse, everyone. I'm sure you got a lot out of that. That was awesome. Thinking about when he started coaching Wayne Ellington and the question was, where are your best shots? And how that question, that concept can apply to thinking about the things that we do. What are the things we are doing that are contributing the most value in our lives? What are our strengths, right? And trying to find ways of doing more of that. I love that he said that Shay Gilgis Alexander had an insatiable drive. And another thing you might ponder is, do you have that? Where do you have that? What are the areas of your life where you feel that? How can we develop more of that? The SNAP acronym, Stop, Notice, Assess, and Pivot, I thought was valuable. And the concept of self-efficacy, living today as the person you want to become tomorrow. I always think of a question which I remember learning from John Berghoff, which is how would the person I want to become act in this situation, right? Every time you're experiencing a different situation in your life and considering how would the person I want to become act here, what would they do? And the more that we do that, the more we're living into that future for ourselves. David talked about the 90% rule in terms of being able to avoid the pitfalls of the perfectionist. And then, of course, finding your purpose. I thought there were some good insights on that as well. I got three quick thank yous, and then we'll be done. Thank you to John Rulin for bringing David Nurse into the Cutco Vector network and family. Thank you to John Kane for lining him up as a speaker for our SLC event and to John Fiaco for the direct introduction to David that resulted in me being able to have this podcast conversation today. Hope you liked it. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free 
and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 